Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series and Girl of Fire, the first in a YA fantasy. In this interview, I'll be talking with Anne-Marie Lutz. Anne-Marie Lutz's novel, Taylor was published by Small Press Hydra. Let me tell you a bit about the novel and where the title comes from. Talon is the designation for magical power in a world that Anne-Marie Lutz has created. It's a power so desirable that a special position of seeker has been created. Seekers wander throughout the country, hoping to identify children with the gift. Our seeker, a kind-hearted female priest, is dedicated to her task, convincing the children to accompany her to the special hospital where they will be cared for. Almost all children eventually succumb to an illness linked with their magical gift. It's called the Dark Twin. And our heroine, Seeker Jaina, wants to make sure that they get the best care possible from Mage Herring, who works closely with them. However, the world is not as it seems. Soon Jaina learns that there really is no illness. The children fade from having to feed Mage Herring's power and youth. Determined to rescue the latest child from death, she enlists the help of her lover, Lord Metton, to journey to a neighboring country and plead for intercession. In meantime, Mage Heron's efforts to acquire all children with Talon become more frantic as demons rise and invade his country. Further complicating matters is the rise of the mysterious Eastern Mage, who always appears soon after the demons. Jaina and Mutton's goal becomes more complicated as they have to contend with Mutton's spoiled friend, Lord Halpin de Morn, as well as being drawn in a three-way war. So if you like novels without cynicism, overt sexuality, or extreme violence, this might be one for you to check out. We're going to start the interview by a reading, and then I'll jump into the questions with Anne-Marie. This is a reading from the very beginning of Talenor, Chapter 1. Jaina knew as soon as she set foot in the village that a gifted child lived there. She opened up her senses and cast wide. Talen lay over the place like a layer of mist floating over fields on a damp morning. Her first thought was to run away. She could return to Erior for help, turn ears around, and vanish on the road leading through the ripening grain leaving the village of Bless Us Goddess none the wiser that she'd been there. Mother Thara could return with Jaina and take over the burden of convincing the parents to let the Talenor child go. Jaina shivered. This was her duty, the thing she'd been trained for above and beyond the years that she'd studied to be a priest. Now, with Talen so thick in the air that it prickled her skin, 
she wasn't sure she could complete her task. Small figures appeared between two houses and shrieked a greeting. Two of the children of Bless Us Goddess raced toward Jaina, braided hair bouncing. Her chance to avoid this task was gone. In only a few moments, more children surrounded her, focused on the donkey pulling Jaina's utilitarian cart. These children were all too young to be the Talenor. Her name's Ears, Jaina told them. The children laughed and clustered close to the donkey's flanks to pet her. The head woman awaited them by the market circle. She was lean and sun-browned with striking silver hair. She invited Jaina into her house to drink tea. Well, it's been two years since we've seen a priest. Old priest Mag it was last time, the head woman said, as she sat and poured the tea. You're very welcome here. We've had two babies born since the last year. The head woman had brought out her best mugs, blue glazed treasures from the artisans in Duscapi. No doubt they'd been purchased at great cost to this tiny village and were brought out only to honor guests. Guilt pricked at Jaina. The head woman might not be so welcoming if she knew Jaina would be taking a child away from Bless Us Goddess. Well, thanks for sharing your reading with us. And I'm going to jump right into some questions about your book. Okay, that's great. And thank you for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. So to start off, let's talk about Jana. Am I saying her name right? I usually pronounce it Jana. Um, However, I think however people hear it in their heads when they're reading the book is fine. But I usually pronounce it Jana. Okay. We'll refer to her as Gina. She's a traveling priest of Imnashu. Under what rules and restraints does Jana as a priest live, and how does she serve the population? Jana uh, is a, as you said, a traveling priest of her goddess, Imnashu, and she travels a circuit. So she travels to little towns and homesteads and villages that are small and can't afford to have a priest of their own. So she lives basically on the supplies and hospitality that she gets from the various places that she goes. She's not actually allowed to do other things to make her own money, but she's usually well supported by the places she goes. Um, She is, she mainly is, uh, she's always very welcome. wherever she goes, because some of these places may not have seen a priest for a while, and they have, you know, different things they want her to do, and also any news she has from the last village she was at, or the last town she was in, is always welcome. So, uh, she serves the goddess in Ashu, and part of the fact that Jenna is welcome is that in Ashu is a widely respected and worshipped goddess. What is the role of this goddess in the lives of her believers? Um, Imnashu, I envisioned as a goddess that kind of underlies all the daily lives of her believers. So she doesn't have a lot of um, rituals and so forth that she necessarily needs to do. Jaina is the voice of her goddess in the lives of her believers. So, for example, when she travels to a little town, she blesses the babies, the new babies that have been born since the last time she was there, blesses any newly married 
uh, people. And one of the really important things to do is that she sings the souls of the departed to her goddess, anybody that's passed away since there was a last, last a priest in the area. So she is, uh, in Nashi's a peaceful goddess. Um, she's kind of a goddess of daily life and transition. Um, she underlies all the daily passages of life that we all go through. And also, she uh, is a goddess of music, not just singing or playing an instrument, but the music that they say lies behind all the uh, the, the world. So the music of water, music of the wind, and so forth. So basically, she plays a really complete role in the lives of her believers, and yet and so she's widely followed as a goddess of peace and music who just is there all the time in the course of their daily lives. Yeah, so you mentioned one of Jana's responsibilities is singing to the souls of the dead. But unfortunately, Jana doesn't have a good voice. Uh, how does she cope with the fact that she doesn't have a good voice and that is one of her main duties? And what does that say about Jana, her coping strategy? Uh, yeah, that's something that's really important to her. The Being a goddess of music, uh, the people that worship in Nashu usually do so by singing. So, for example, in the temple in the main city, one of the things that they do is they always have music. Uh, they keep the goddess's music going at all times. And the priests that go around to the villages, the way that they they help the people transition, is that they use music, they sing. So a lot of the priests have really excellent voices, and they're known for that. And as a matter of fact, the priest that was on Jana's circuit before Jana started to uh, do the circuit had an amazing voice, Priest Mag, and he was renowned. And in addition to worshiping, people enjoyed hearing him sing. And as you said, Jana doesn't have a good voice. And maybe in the normal course of things might not have been chosen to be a priest because that Jaina has always thought it was a requirement. But Jaina does two things. She plays the flute also, and she worships in that way. And in addition to that, she does sing because she has to sing as part of the worship. And what's interesting is that in the story, Amnashu is a real goddess. So Jaina will begin to sing to a new village, a place she hasn't been before. And people will people will look at her funny, basically, because they're expecting an amazing voice. And Jaina doesn't have that. But as Jaina continues singing, as the voice of the goddess, the music of the goddess fills hers, and she kind of channels that. And people are usually aware that the goddess is there and that the, that, that is uh, working, and they're very pleased with that. Um, so Jaina knows she's doing things right, but I will say that she probably has always envied the voices of other priests as she hears them in the temple and in her training and so forth. But she knows that she can worship the goddess with music in many different ways. But yeah, yeah, she initially feels uncomfortable, especially when people look at her oddly when she first starts singing and they're expecting, you know, somebody amazing and takes them a little while to get adjusted. Yeah, I thought it kind of indicated Jana is an adaptable person. And that she, yeah. That's what it said, that she's 
to me, it said that she was a practical, adaptable person. So that made me like her more. Yeah, she has, she has kind of adjusted to that because, um, yeah, she gets funny reactions from people initially. But she does. She, she completes her role and serves her goddess whatever way she can, whether that's playing the flute and any other way she can, because it's her calling. In addition, of course, to her being a seeker, which is another part of her role. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about being a seeker, too. Um, she seeks out people who have Kalinor, which is a magical power, and uh, you've created that word for it. But tell me, in the world that you're portraying, what are the different things that Kalinor can be used for? Uh, Kalinor, Kalinor um, are the um, the people that that use the raw magical power, which is Kalin, okay. and um, it. Um, it is a magical power that is kind of um, a power or an aptitude or an ability that appears in those who have it. Not everyone has it. But in those who have it, they start noticing it when they're maybe in their middle teen years. And they, it, it is initially, it has to be trained to be used. So initially, they just notice, oh, while uh, the, the boy that uh, Gina is taking to the city said that, he just noticed that things looked deeper than they used to. And then he started thinking that he might be able to just grab and pull at something and might be able to do something. So they know something's different, but they don't know what it is. And in order to be used for any what we would call practical purpose, other than just pulling at things or noticing deeper things, they have to have training. So... For example, um, Heron, the mage defender, was uh, was trained when, when he was young, uh, many, many years ago, because he's very old. He was trained to be a mage. And so when you have this power, uh, this ability, you can then be trained to use it, say, as he does for battle magery, for defending the land. Or in the neighboring country, there are mage healers. So these are individuals that have Kalon, and they've chosen to be trained to learn how to use that power to heal people, not just, you know, to bind up a broken bone or um, provide, you know, medications, but actually to see deeper and see what might be going on inside and be able to work to heal that with their majory. So Kalon can be used for uh, several different things, but that's after they get some training. The actual raw ability, the power, is uh, is, is a raw gift uh, and um, needs to be trained further. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So you mentioned that the person who trains uh, people with that gift in Jaina's country is called Mage Run. So it turns out yep. that he stayed alive for hundreds of years 
He's actually siphoning that tailing from the children entrusted to him. And he thinks his behavior is totally justified because he saved the country from a demon invasion. Uh, has he abused his power? Well, I, I think he has. Um, and I think that one of the things that I kind of explore a little bit in Talenor in the middle of the story is how different people feel about the ethics of using whether or not you can use other people's abilities for your own ends. Uh, Mage Heron himself is an extreme example. So he is responsible in his role for defending the country from magical attack from the demons, which show up every so often after a long span of years. But he has the power to help defend against them with his magery. So there aren't very many mages, and he started out using and using the power of others to augment his own, let's say. And a side effect of that is prolonging his life. So he's lived a very long time. He's almost 200 years old. Um, after a while, let's say that maybe his own end became his real motivator in taking the power of other people. Plus, he did it without their permission and even without their knowledge simply to prolong his power and his lifespan. So there's really no way around that, in my opinion. He definitely abused his power. Um, any any rationale, maybe, that he might have had at the very beginning of when he started doing this is is is, is, is long gone, let's say. So, yeah, that's a thing that Jaina is trying to, um, trying to save someone from being abused by Maid Sharon in the same way, uh, having his power taken and his life. You mentioned uh, other major characters in the book uh, who are in positions of power have different attitudes about using Talon. So tell me a little more about uh, some of the other characters in the book and how they would react even to having Talon offered to them. Yes, that's a good question. Um so Heron, of course, believes that, that the mage defender believes that other people's abilities are basically his to use as he chooses without their permission because he has he feels that he's the defender. And so he he's an extreme example. On the other hand, we have um in the neighboring country of Alsace, and we have a mage healer named Ossane. And he has a very different view. So he, he is a healer, he's a mage, and he can use his abilities to heal people, just drawing upon his own ability, you know, his own power. At one point in the book, he's unable or thinks he's unable to do it on his own and is about to give up on healing someone. And he is offered the use, he's, he's offered the chance to draw on someone else's mage ability, their talon, and to use their power to help him along to save someone. So this is ability. So this person is offering it of their own free will and giving it of their own free will and full knowledge of what they're doing. But and Austin actually takes her up on that and does it and uses it. And for the rest of the no novel, he feels that he has committed a terrible crime mm -hmm. simply by using her ability, even with her. Even with her permission, he feels he has done something very wrong. So that's like the polar opposite of what uh, the mage defender thinks. And then there's various other people in the book that 
for example, one individual that does use the power of others to defend the land with their permission, and she's fine with that. So there's a lot of exploration of what different people think is okay to do when you're using gifts of other people. Um, and the goddess has in Nashu has one way of looking at it. Um, Jaina has a maybe more practical way of looking at it, and and um, so they all they all have their own things that they do and how they get along. Um, and then Jaina and and Menton, of course, who's with her, he is of the same opinion as she is, and they just try they want to defend and get rid of. The mage defender, who they see as like a scourge on the land, basically, which he is. You mentioned Matten. He's actually Jana's boyfriend, which I was surprised by. It's kind of cool to be a priest and be able to have a boyfriend. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Matten's a lord, and he has a school friend helping to mourn. Uh, they have that history in common. What things do they have in common other than that history, and what ways are they different? Um, Help and, and Metten. Metten is a, uh, as you said, they're both lords. They come from the noble class. And in many ways, they're very similar. Um, they're both privileged. They uh, grew up, they went to school together, which is how they met. And they're both from privileged and wealthy class. So Helpen's parents are on the council. And Metten's parents are also in the nobility. So in many ways, they're similar. They are privileged, and they went to an elite school. Um, but their individual personalities kind of kind of a temper how that works with them. So Halpern completely buys into the ways of privilege that he was taught, and he knows he's privileged, sure, but he has no doubt that he totally deserves it. Um, he's a selfish man. He doesn't consider the needs of others. Uh, when he wants to do something and it doesn't suit his immediate needs, he'll order people to do it or just skip it. Um, so that's his worldview. Um, Metten, on the other hand, he is definitely still a product of his upbringing, no doubt about that. But he has some, let's say, empathy. And because of that, he's able to kind of consider a little bit what other people might be thinking or feeling. Um, and because of that, he sees other people more as individuals, no matter what class they're from. And he's a little more open, considerate, um, in addition to which he is devoted to Jaina and willing to do whatever is necessary to help her. So but, they, but there's a like a fundamental difference in the way they the way they are in spite of their upbringing. And I think that's primarily due to, to Menton's empathy that he learned a little bit that hey, other people are people, no matter you know, whether they're a different class than I am and so forth. But they're still friends. They're very different, but they're still friends throughout the entire novel. That's true. Yeah, they are. Well, we're recording this interview in November, which is NaNoWriMo month. Have you ever written a novel during NaNoWriMo? Oh, I have. <laughs> and sometimes, I, sometimes this month of writing a novel in one month Sometimes it works for me, um, and sometimes it doesn't, and it probably depends a lot on where I am as um, in the process, you know, and I know you're a writer, but, you know, in the process of plotting, or am I ready, or do I understand my characters, and all that kind of thing. Um, so I do think it's a really great uh, 
great tool for when you're ready to write. And as a matter of fact, this book, Taylor was a, it was started during NaNoWriMo back, oh, many years ago. So I completed the, the novel. It was obviously a first draft and put it aside because I was working, I was finished at that time. I was really focused then on finishing up uh, the second book of my color mage novels, which I had a contract for and needed to be done. <laughs> so I was, uh, that kind of happened right after NaNoWriMo. So I focused on that and continued on. And then after a while, I got Taylor out again. Uh, obviously, since it was a first draft, it needed a lot of rewriting, a lot of revision. Um, I also was um, fortunate enough to belong to a critique group, which every other member also writes some sort of speculative fiction, you know, some kind of science fiction, fantasy. Um, and so forth. And so we I ran it through that group, got a lot of really good feedback. We wrote again, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, then, uh, so that's where Taylor came from. And I wouldn't have had it without co- competing in that, uh, well, competing, you know. Competing <laughs> Com- with yourself. <laughs> uh, being in that uh, month uh, uh, a few years ago. So, um, yeah, I was tr- attempting to do it again this year and did well for a while. But, you know, the situation that we're all in uh, here with the pandemic some, somehow sometimes uh, disturbs the writing process a little. <laughs> well, yeah, it it's, um, requires a lot of our attention and uh, the vote, whichever way you voted, um, you know, all those events have been pulling a lot of energy and attention for most of us. Oh, yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. Well, I have one last kind of silly question. Uh, it's about the donkey. When Jana visits these different villages, she has a donkey that draws her cart, and it's vividly described. I now know so much more about donkeys. Like, I know that female donkeys are called Janets. How did you uh, find out so much about donkeys? Usually heroines have, like, a nice big horse or something. Yeah. <laughs> um I actually didn't didn't know um, much about donkeys, and probably still don't, and uh, because I I've not been around them very much. But I kind of decided when I, I liked the idea of Jaina traveling a circuit, because you know places have to if you're going to have a priest there full time, and you have to support that priest, maybe these tiny places can't do that. So. I thought a little bit about how she would travel, and I did originally think of a horse, but then I did some research and found out that donkeys are actually, have actually been work, uh, working, work animals with humans for thousands of years and are used all over the world and are different in many ways from horses and didn't really know how. So I tried to do some research on um, I did find out, like as you say, that uh, female donkeys are called Janet. Some people say Jenny. Um, and, but also um, did some research. How much? How big are they? We're used to sometimes seeing very small donkeys, but there's mm-hmm. a variety of sizes. Some of which are fully capable of pulling a cart and doing other heavy, heavier work. Um, and uh, followed a uh, donkey rescue site on social media and did a number of different things, trying to learn 
enough anyway about this to try to make ears a a character um uh, actually uh, it, ears ears and Jaina are friends um as they go on entire journey but she's so glad to see ears again when ears turned up um and also the children in the different villages love the donkey so um yeah probably what tends to happen is that i i research and i learn to write the novel and then probably i forget a big chunk of it so i probably don't know as much as i did before and i'm certainly no expert but i I like donkeys from what I've learned about them. I'm going to have to, at some point, uh, there's someone around here where I live that has donkeys. Um, I have been trying for years to get in and see them, and I haven't been able to. But, uh, yeah, I like years. Um, I, I think she's a good addition to the story. I think so, too. Well, thanks so much for dropping in to talk with us today, and we wish you lots of success with your career. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed your questions and uh, being on the program with you. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network and Fantasy. I've been talking to Anne-Marie Lutz about Taylor published with Hydra Press. May will feature Andrea Stewart. Andrea is the author of The Bone Shard Daughter, the first in the Drowning Empire series. The Bone Shard Daughter was a Goodreads Choice Award nominee for fantasy and debut novel in 2020. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Baroness Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, GabrielleMatthew.com. G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. I'm Nara at Gabrielle Author.